0: Welcome to Permaculture Tonight. Tonight's guest I saw for the first time on JeffLawton.com on how to, cr- to create a permaculture design. It's free to watch if you put in your email on JeffLawton.com, and it's in the middle of all the videos. It happened a while ago. It's absolutely amazing. First takes you through Daniel's property and then afterwards it takes you through how he designs. And he works for RI USA and he also has an amazing website called Natural Capital Plant Database. You can check it out by going to permacultureplantdata.com. All right, well, let's hear from Daniel. Yeah, let's talk about the plant database. That's something I'm really interested in. I'm a seed saver. And genetic expression and categorizing those things in a database. I mean that no one I, they try to do that in the GRIN data the database the USDA database, but I don't think they do a very good job. And I've gotten germplasm from them through the school I used to work at, and it was like subpar. So oh, yeah. it's so comforting that someone who's a permaculturist is doing scientific research and documenting it and sharing it for a nominal fee with the world yeah
1: and that's you know the way it started out was um and this is back in 2003 so it was a long time ago um but paula westmoreland who was my partner in this she just had the idea that because she was a programmer that was her business way back when right a lot of us in permaculture you know um we come from other areas that we were working in, or either was our former or we also we just added another you know, form of work to our lifestyle. But um, she was working with landscape and plants and taking permaculture courses in early 2000. She was a programmer. She's trying to work with plants, and she's finding that there's nothing out there that can do what we want. And we all have this, especially in permaculture design, we all have kind of that same sort of list of needs for our plant lists. And part of it is being organized, and you do need to make a list, you know, of what you want to put in, and either in Excel or on paper or whatever you're going to do it on. And and so she said, well, heck with that. I'm just going to make my own. And um, got some bucks together and got a bunch of volunteers and other people that she paid And she had this all laid out of what she thought it should do. And the whole idea behind the database was not about ornamentals and, you know, flower color and what texture it has and all that kind of stuff. But really, what are the ecological functions of these plants? How do they work together? Which ones are the nitrogen fixers? Which ones are dynamic accumulators? And then how can I put those together to make plant guilds so that these things will take care of each other you know, like the forest garden, which we're all trying to aspire to. Uh, every, all the designs were all trying to build. You know, a forest garden, or at least have polycultures and plant guilds. So that's where she got started, and it has gone great. I mean, since then we had a. The number of the beginning years were really just getting it started and getting it populated, and most of it was for the upper Midwest, uh, northern latitudes of North America, mostly. Um, but in incredible format, and as soon as anybody started using it, it was like, wow, all of your questions are answered. And that was the whole idea behind having a relational database as a plant database rather than just a big spreadsheet or just a list of plants where you have to do all that work yourself.
0: So going back to uh, the guilds, you have a section on there that 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 is for guilds, right?
1: Uh We have... Uh, a number of pages on their uh, tabs, whatever you want to call it. So there's... Um, the first tab is basically about natural capital. And then you can go about permaculture, which kind of gives you those basics with the principles and ethics and things. And then there's a little page about polyculture design. And that's pretty much as far as we get into it on the site. Uh, I should say, though, that we're adding to that. And this isn't... you were first to know. You're the first to know. So... We have all these great plants for North America. We don't have enough desert plants. We don't have enough tropical plants. So
0: Maybe you um, could team up with Joseph Simcox, the botanical explorer, because he's been doing a lot of work in those areas of America.
1: Right, exactly. And, and we need to get all those plants in our format um, so that we can uh, do those in the search.
0: Right. And And, and it's very true that he's trying to he's doing the searches in a traditional way where he's looking for Latin names. He's trying to find people that will take a crop out of the Amazon and make it into something that can be commercialized. I mean, he is going very traditional. And what you're doing is, is almost it it's pragmatic in a scientific way. It's,
1: well, yeah,
0: yeah. You know, and, and, and it's attacking the problem from a utilitarian point of view and in a way that I think almost everyone at a certain point in their life says, hey, that's what I want in all aspects of my life, is that, that centered, focused pragmatism. And right, one of the things I've been thinking about is if you could, if you could test the polycultures <clears throat> in different climates, you could create maps, and this would take an effort with all of us working together. But we could create maps that, um, and we could account for uh, the soil types. We could even do soil tests to compare the different nitrogen levels to like the growth rates. But we could map the rates for plants um, and their expression through the different climates. We could also show the length and lifespan of polycultures mm-hmm. through those, and then we could actually get real data you know what i mean that we could see right oh yeah
1: right well that's our our our, one of the hardest things about of course design work or anything we're doing with projects is what we call and a lot of people call project creep (laughs) and so it is very difficult for us to keep ourselves focused on our goal which is as many plants that we can get the basic information and that is ecological functions and human uses smart. So, you know, so this, and that's every time we, I mean, if you can imagine a a database that has hundreds of fields and now you want to add a field into that. Now you have, you know, 2000 plants that you have to fill that field in for all of them. So we have to, we kept it right down to a minimum. And we are adapting the database now to tropical plants because we have 2,500 users, almost 2,500 users now in 70 countries. And right away, everybody was honest about, you know, the tropical plants or aren't enough tropical plants, which we knew. <laughs> um, but right now we're putting those in and we're still using our same research and polyculture development system for plant guilds by searching them by their characteristics and by the, what we call, the uh, non-negotiable requirements of the plant itself. So like anybody who goes on uh, permacultureplantdata.com or Natural Capital Plant Database is, if you go to the search page, um, if you have that kind of a uh, subscription, you put in your site conditions, your soil, your growing zone, your climate, all of that information, and then you put in the kind of plants that you're looking for, either by ecological function or human use, and you get that list. Uh, we're trying to do that with tropical plants. The first thing we're doing is citrus and bamboo. Um I've been working down in Costa Rica for a while and learning a lot more about tropical plants down there, have some great, great, there are some excellent plant people and one in particular, um, who lives in northern uh, Costa Rica that's been helping me out and I'm not going to tell you who it is, because uh, I'm not at liberty to do that he doesn't want to be out there you might say. Um, so. Uh, he's helping me get the, get this all set up and helping us, I should say. We have three people on staff now getting these plants ready. But we're going to have 80 new bamboo species wow. in the plant database, all the citrus, all the tropical plants that we get in. And then with the help of Nick Tittle and Neil Bertrando, we've got about 30 tropical polycultures ready to go. And this is now where we're getting into on a whole nother level on the plant database is there will be polyculture examples on the database of, you know, the banana circle, for one thing. Whoa. You know, a right? uh, very popular thing to have, except, OK, what are all the things you can do? It's not a, it's not a recipe that's written in stone. It depends. Like we say about everything. Everybody asks you a question. You always say, well, it depends what your soil is, where you live, your elevation that kind of thing. It doesn't have to be,
0: yeah, it doesn't have to be bananas. It can be taro and papaya, right?
1: Oh, yeah, right. I mean, there's lots of things you can do with that big compost pile in the ground. Right. Um, So, but we're building all of these polycultures and this came from the work in Costa Rica with, with Nick and Neil and some other things that we're putting together are hedges. So all sorts of things that are more linear. So we like the polycultures. I love those guilds. They're all very kind of, Dynamic, roundish sort of groups of plants. Um, But then I asked Neil, I said, you know, we need things that are edible windbreaks. We need things that are on a terrace. You know, there is the linear fashion of design that you're forced to do. I'm following nature everywhere I can. But, like, even on my place, I'm putting in swales and berms. That's a straight line. Um, And I have very little space on there to put things. And so everything ends up being kind of side by side as we kind of work our way down these these berms so we're trying to focus more on that okay if i'm going to do this thing and it's 50 feet or 100 feet or 300 meters or whatever it's going to be how am i going to fit all these plants in there what are my choices for all the different for a windbreak next to a swale all those kinds of things and that's some great artwork that we've been able to put together in the last well about the last two months and as soon as those plants are on the database then we're just going to let everything out
0: wow this is incredible i'm this is the first of its kind. This is, oh, it's so incredible. I, so have any, are any institutions teaching your methodology yet of design? Because your methodology of design is very specific and you're teaching it right now, right?
1: Yeah, I, I do travel and teach. So I've um, uh, one of the first, the first early adopters, you might say, of having me come to them and, and teach a course uh was 2012 with Javin up in, in uh, Victoria, British Columbia, taught up there for about a week. Uh, I was just in Alaska with um, Cindy Carnes in uh, Palmer, Alaska, teaching there for almost, three, uh, it was about two weeks straight. And I'm going up to Calgary from the 11th to the 15th of August, um, Calgary, Canada, uh, teaching up there uh, with Renee, and that's with the oh, the Center for Sustainable Agriculture, I believe. I hope I pronounced that right. Um, and that, again, is a very intense, and all my courses are. It's like, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're getting knee-deep into plants and plant guilds and plant everything, and we're going to build polycultures. We're going to start small, work big, and then we're going to take that, and now we have to learn how to draw these things so other people can understand what we're doing. Uh, and so my my style of, of, of teaching and my style of drawing is all pretty much the same, and that is the most amount of information for the least amount of calories, kind of like permaculture in general. It's like how can we get the most information out on a piece of paper with the least amount of pencil, you know, the least amount of time spent on a computer, um, and have everything ready to go so that we can spend our time outside and not sitting at, sitting at a desk you know, or at the drawing table drawing these things out. Uh, so that's, that's what we're doing with those classes, and it's really come together. The style of our design work, and this is with the help of my, my intern, Kellen. Uh, he came about a year and a half ago and never left. Now he's a design partner in our, in our firm here. Uh, we have two other interns here right now, one that's actually moving to Barcelona, so she'll be working remotely. But it's been really great working with other people as we refine our style of drawing But also, we take that back to, and it always is, to the database, whereas you get on the database, you put in your information, you get your plant list, you get off, and you go draw, right? And that's what you got. Uh, Trying to save our time as much as possible.
0: Yeah, and I really like the way you start with scratch paper, and then you do overlays, and you try different things with, with tracing paper, and then yeah. you, you combine it all onto a, to scale drawing that combines all the layers. And so you have this, And it, it, what, what it does is it gives a scaffolding, to talk like a teacher for a second, it gives a scaffolding for the students um, to see how designing needs revision just like, right. just like you would get in writing an essay.
1: Oh yeah, it's really it's fun in classes because we have some exercises that are preset. It's like here's all the information you can do. We have a what we call a two tree exercise. A lot of people have taken this in the course, and it's we've had we've been doing it for years. And what's funny is that some people we'll give them a stencil with the circles on it. We give a pencil. We get everything they need, and all they have to do is commit to drawing a circle on the paper, and. They're so afraid to make that first circle because it might be wrong, you know, and, and cool. people will stare at the page. And I say, no, just just freehand it. Do whatever you need to kind of get started. Um, but what's interesting is that they're just so afraid to put it down because they don't want to make a mistake. And that always comes out in the class. I said, this is what you are You're supposed to do it wrong. <laughs> That's the whole idea of learning is that let's do it wrong a whole bunch of times so that now we know when we're doing it right. You know, because how are you going to know the difference? And ecologically speaking, nature is very forgiving in many ways. In many ways, it's not. But when you do something wrong in nature, it will let you know, and then you can do it right. Uh, but the fear of putting anything in the ground or putting pencil on paper because it might not look right or my circles aren't perfectly round or something like that defeats the whole purpose of growing uh, organically or inorganically uh, and moving forward because... You have to do it wrong. Hopefully, like Bill Mollison says, small and slow, right? We do small polycultures. We draw small things, and then we work up our acreage up to more plants and bigger, more complex things. But you do have to start small, and like uh, with, with graph paper, with, with tracing paper, I have my spiral notebooks, and that's what we doodle in. I mean, that's where the creativity comes is, is when you're doodling in a spiral notebook with pencil trying to figure out the combination of plants how they're going to fit in this space, you know, and then you tear that page out and you do it again and you do it again. And after a while, what's amazing to me, after a while, you you come up with a, an arrangement of these plants and it turns out to be, wow, this is about the only way this can be done or this fits here, which isn't really true. Of course, nature will find a thousand ways to make it work. But for us when we do it, it's like I just had to figure out as close as I could you know, how nature would put these plants in if they just all showed up here, right? You know, it's not going to be in a perfect circle. Uh, it's not going to be symmetrical. It's going to be some oblong sort of shaped thing where everything's getting its needs met and it has nothing to do with everything being in symmetry. It has things in relationship to the soil, the slope of the land, where the sun is, where the wind is. All those things just make this huge kind of curvilinear bubble. So that things actually fit and can get all their needs met. I've seen a lot of lately. I'm seeing a lot of symmetry in design, and I know how people love uh, sacred um,
0: mandalas.
1: Yeah. Well. Well. No, the mandala. I'm a real fan of the mandala. So, let's, of course, I have to set that aside. That's my major, and that's actually a really good point, because I do mandala gardens for community gardens, totally, all the time. Very scripted. Very done, Very much done a certain way. Uh, Now that you have have me digress into that. Uh, But a mandala is a hugely disturbed area, right? Any kind of garden, annual garden, community garden, it's really tough to try to get any ecology going in that thing at all because what are we doing? We're constantly in it, we're constantly disturbing it. And so my community gardens are all 64 foot mandalas, diameter mandalas. They have 12 17 keyhole beds in the center and a big 10 foot perimeter for other field crops on the outside wow. so that is very much a very much the the round and very symmetrical but that is an annual garden that's production right and that needs to be highly controlled so we can fit everything in and especially where we live we've only got 180 days to do this so we're going to pump everything we can into this tiny little space and get you know what we need um But the sacred geometry and the Fibonacci and and all those things, which are really, really great to look at, are not ecological, unless you get down to um, almost like the molecular level and the structure of things, right? When nature does something with a Fibonacci, like say the conch shell, or with the eye of a bee, or honeycombs and things like that, right? Those are natural structures that are built by nature That are just intrinsically beautiful because that is the only way it works right that's where nature has made this pattern when we try to take those patterns and put those on the landscape again we're just forcing another pattern on the landscape that doesn't belong there because we think it's right when really the plants will go where they'll go depending upon how you put them in and their needs are met and forcing them into some sacred shape does not necessarily make them sacred. And I think I can say, um, it's just like, again, what I say about annual gardens. uh, When we show uh, our circle garden or a keyhole bed and how beautiful it is and how everything fills its space, and then we'll show a garden where everything is in these perfect rows and everything's 18 inches apart and everything's in a straight line. People will look at those straight lines in the annual garden and see that as... um, a real stable arrangement right it's order when really those straight lines those force patterns create chaos in natural systems because natural systems create their own order right all we can do is try to get close and the only way we can do that is to place plants based on their needs and based on the environment not based on a mathematical structure that we try to make look like order, but only creates chaos.
0: Right, it's the difference between recognizing patterns and then imposing patterns.
1: Exactly, we are, uh, when we do the site assessment and with the clients and even in the class, I say, first of all, rule number one, don't judge because we're always on somebody else's property and there's always things going on there, so that's rule number one. Don't judge what's going on here, that's not our job. Rule number two is we are imprinted by the land, we do not imprint on the land. That's why we do site assessment. That's why we look at the slope, the sun, the water, the soil types. We draw all these maps of where where the water is going and where the sun is shining so we can see those patterns. Those patterns are the design. Those patterns show us where things would most likely go so we can just get started, right? But it is imprinting on us and we're trying to find those sweet spots where we can put those plants where they'll get all their needs met. Uh, and so it is very much organic and it's ecological and it's based on the plants. Right. And every time we try to impose, like you say, impose a pattern, you know, now we're imprinting on the land and then we're just going to be fighting that. Cause that, that pattern will shift away from what you think it is to what the natural, natural pattern is supposed to be. Right. And,
0: and we can create organization like your database. Um, But it's all about creating comprehensible things. So I've thought about this a lot as as a teacher. And straight lines and monocultures imitate things that helped us throughout time. So when we are in nature, and you see animals do this too, whenever you see a smash of color or a focus of something... We are drawn to it, so we, because we went to the place where all the berries were, we could sit instead of traveling to where the little berries and traveling to where those little berries. You would just sit and eat all day, and so you conserve a lot of energy, and you'd be able to take a lot of nutrients in. So, we're I feel like all animals are kind of keyed into this idea of glut, and so when we create monoculture, and we don't have the education to understand that's wrong we naturally look at it and go, ah, because it's this perfection that is kind of dreamy and surreal because our instincts are telling us, look for that, look for that. And we find it and we're like, oh, it's the dream, right? And I feel really bad for the people because they, uh, who who prescribe, you know, monoculture um, faith because they just, they have a they have a faith in an illusion that is an instinctual paradigm. It's like the same thing as um, hedonism, or being a shaker, or you know what I mean. There's a limited lifespan to that. And-
1: right. Well, there's there are reasons for that too. So, you know why when, and I, I'm a real fan of and I used to uh, did an immersion and study in Native American studies and Native American history and their practices. Uh, Buffalo Bird Woman.
0: Ooh, has good stuff.
1: A, oh man, right. It's all about Hidatsa garden, gardening and things in the northern plains. Amazing book, right? Do you, do you know you Carol see... Depp? What's that?
0: Carol Depp. Uh no, they well. She she had... she actually studied her. She was uh, she went to Harvard, and then she uh, has a PhD in biology, and she. And genetics, and she has been studying plants. Did the resilient gardener, and she writes about oh sure yeah. But she writes about um, this na- this specific Native American woman and her work, and about um, specifically drying down squash, summer squash, so you can yeah. turn it soup later.
1: Exactly. Oh, exactly. Actually, that the research was done at the University of Minnesota by some master's students. Who did this who took down all this information maybe in the 20s i'm trying to i don't recall exactly when and so the book is basically open source it's just you can find the documentation Uh, but the book came out and that's where i got mine and then i but i also native science um uh who wrote that book i'm looking at my library here my (laughs) library you know permaculture you know if your permaculture bookshelf hasn't collapsed at least once you obviously don't have enough books um,
0: There's never enough books.
1: I know. So, uh, yeah, Gregory Cajete, Native Science, Natural Laws of Interdependence, is a really great book about native gardening, native culture, and then the Buffalo Bird Woman book is really good. There's so many good books about that. But to connect that back to what we were talking about, when I read the Buffalo Bird Woman book and when I studied the Hopi Indians, the Hidatsa Indians, and how they were gardening, they were doing it in mounds, right? And the whole Three Sisters technique, which was all over the country, different people doing it with corn as corn moved across the continent. um, It's really amazing. They all figured out how to do this and how to do it in their own way. But they were doing it in mounds. There were very few gardens to anything that was done in a straight line because the straight line is a mechanical thing. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. A straight line is a mechanical thing done by what things that are done in wheels, things that have to be pushed. So when mechanisms came into gardening, they required that things were in a straight line because that mean then you could push the thing straight. You know, the plow when that first was developed behind a horse, right? You're not. You can't really. Uh, you could. I mean, it probably would have been better if they'd have figured it out. But it's a lot easier to go downhill with a horse than it is to go on contour. Um, But that kind of stuff really demanded that things were in a straight line. Then you have automated seeders, right? You got all sorts of machinery that's being pulled. Well, now you have to have everything in a straight line because the wheel is turning and the wheel needs to go in a straight line so that the seeds are spaced the correct way and and things like that. So um, the other thing I wanted to mention, too, though, about monocultures is, and I, I work with farmers a lot and i'm actually working on a on a study right now for a perennial crop transition field uh, for a farmer in minnesota which is so incredible i can't believe it i mean they only gave us an acre out of 500 but we are intensely planting this whole thing with hundreds of plants that we're going to say you know they're going to say well how much can you get off this acre compared to beans and corn and I say well how much that will, how many seasons of harvest would you like You know that kind of thing
0: Uh,
1: so we're we're just filling this up but working with farmers what i've really understood is uh, first of all because they're so invested right through generations and money to do things the way they've been told it's hard to really move that ship in another direction it's so expensive that they're so invested and who is buying their material you know the crops are being sold to corporations food producers who demand consistency they have to have corn at a certain dryness right humidity they have to moisture content right they have to have their beans at a certain chemical state they have to have their wheat at a certain dryness and a certain flavor with certain oils all those kinds of things because they have to fit those into a formula to get a consistent product for their customers so everything that a farmer does in bulk has to be a commodity it's not food it's a commodity it's an ingredient that's going to go into manufacturing or processing so they don't have a lot of choices for variation because it's really going to screw up their product and then they can't sell it so that's what we're really trying to figure out with the farmers is how can they stay uh profitable make a living not destroy their soil still make enough money with multiple crops as opposed to just just corn, which is the simplest way to go, right now, corn and beans. Uh, how can they do that with a perennial system? Um, that, where you know, and it's what's, as we're talking to this, and I know the questions that have come up. How do you harvest that? Is there a machine that does that? <laughs> is that another machine they're going to have to buy? You know, so we're going to have elderberry, and we're going to have currants, or we're gonna have and we're going to have honeyberry. We're going to have all these different fruiting shrubs. Great. How do I get that off the plant? Right. And how can I get enough of it that I can sell it and pay my bills? So I really do have a, uh, you know, a hard time trying to answer these questions for them because they really are stuck in a system that does not let them be creative. Uh, You know, if they're the fifth generation farmer, can you imagine being the one that loses the farm? Right. There's a lot of Pressure. pressure. There's a lot of pressure on farmers to keep that farm and also make a profit. Um, and then other people are telling them to come in and make change when, you know, everything is such a huge risk for them.
0: Well, we just have to clearly show that uh, it makes more money and that the investment that they put in has a fast return and that they right. can get out from under the thumb of the banks and the government. Because that's really what's going on. They're being bullied. and these- Oh, right. Like, everybody. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. that's the really sad thing, is that these guys are just trying to be true to the heritage. And they don't have any other choices financially. And so they either kind of make the best of it. And and plus, they went to school with all those guys that are working in the FDA or, you know, at the bank um, that they're going to. So it's it's just hard. It's a difficult situation, and the thing it has led to a lot of people thinking farming um, doesn't lead to success or or money. Um, but clearly, I mean, people like Curtis Stone, um, people like Neil Speckman. So these people who are on these edges of where we think we can grow, and they're growing. And I think that right. it's programs like yours that facilitate a lot more growth and legitimizes a lot of the things that permaculture strives to do. I think we need more people like you and your organization doing the scientific research, documenting it and and basically releasing it to the public. I mean, it's just $20 to have access. I think everyone should everyone who listens to this should totally kick in and get in and see what's going on yeah. and start a, Yeah,
1: they they I don't know, you know, but a lot of things go this way, but it isn't about the money. I mean, we haven't withdrawn any money from this thing since 2003, because every time we get any money, we have to pay our web guy or we have to pay our, you know, well, the people that we who do get the money are the interns, you know, our correspondents, uh, the designers that live in Arizona or Seattle or Costa Rica or Lebanon and say, can you do the Because we pay everybody, right? I mean, We don't expect to get paid for what we're doing because this is our mission, but we do expect to give people a value of worth for the work that they're doing for us to make this thing work, right? So wow. the money goes right back out to the people who are buying into what we're trying, trying to do.
0: That's awesome.
1: Um, by the way, all and, and that's you know all the information is free, and this kind of goes to one of my tenants with permaculture too because. You know, we're trying to do PDCs and things like that, and they're so expensive to put together, and they're so expensive to run, and everybody complains about that. But what we always have to remember is all this information is free. You just have to go find it, right? And so, you know, everything you want to know about permaculture is probably on the Internet. and It isn't going to cost you anything. But if you want to spend 12 days learning all that stuff on somebody else's place and get fed and everything, that's obviously the packaging of that is going to cost you some money, because they have some expense involved with that too. Uh, so in line with that, all the information on our plant database is free. If you know the plant that you want to look for um, and you can go through our whole database of all the plants and you can learn a ton of stuff just by going through all the plants and then learning about what plants you want to work with. Or if you want to help us out and you want it packaged, you know we'll let you search the plant database based on your Uh, ecological assessment you know what kind of soil you have your site conditions things like that and that will give you the list and then all the work will be done for you right but that's a tool and that costs us money to make that tool so that's why we ask people to help with that and that's only $20 a year which I don't think is a lot and we have a lot of people that are on it for free still and other that pay the 20 bucks and we appreciate that and they can do all the searches they want for a year then the next level, and this is more the designer level, because, again, it costs us money to, you know, to make these tools, and we're always trying to adapt them to make them better, is you can have that search list now output onto an Excel spreadsheet, and so not only have you seen all the plants that you can have, now you can download it into your own spreadsheet and start working your own plant list that's, that's your personal plant list for your site. You know, change it how you want, add columns, add cells. Do all the editing, make it what you want it to be, uh, but that's where the designers that we have—that's what we're on there is about—is to get that information and get it in a format now that we can use so we can go design.
0: Absolutely. So, well, yeah, thank you and, so- that's,
1: and people are only on it for, you know, people like like myself especially when I need something, I'm on and off that thing in about five minutes because I'm looking for a certain plant in certain conditions. I download my my spreadsheet now. I'm off the web. Now I'm deep into the spreadsheet, kind of figuring out what my polycultures are.
0: Instead of them just being viewers now, you're having people be participants?
1: Exactly, because um, especially, you know, when it gets into, let's just say like Costa Rico is my example, right? There's 17 different bananas. I'm learning all this stuff. There's 80 bamboo. There's all these different things. But then I also, okay, what are the ones that you're actually using? You know what are the ones that you use for feed and what are the ones you use for building things like that Um, and so we have to now we are more and more and we're going to have a page up soon where you will just go in and say i want that you know i would like this plant added to the database this is what i know about it what do you guys know and then we go start doing the research and we have some really great research access that most people don't have it's really dense. There's a lot of reading, and most of it has to do with peer-reviewed documents um, that are really dense in many ways. But you have, to, you have to wade through all this stuff to get those little morsels of information that are real important to us as designers. But we want suggestions. We need people to tell us, you know, what didn't you see on there, and what would you like? Now, that being said, we don't need 30 different, you know, cultivars of semi-dwarf apples, Um, right. We have a few apples on there. Standard apples are really great. Heirloom apples are great. Uh, but it's like all the different kinds of roses and all the different kinds of orchids. Those are more ornamental. We don't need that. We need to know what is the nitrogen fixer in your area? You know, what are the, what are the plants that grow native to you? Or what are the things that people used to eat? You know, you know, 50, 100, 150 years ago in your area so that we can build a natural plant database that's based on what you can actually use to you know to feed yourself and to build an ecological system as opposed to you know a hobby of i want these flowers in front of my you know in front of my house absolutely but yeah we're more and more we're counting on that and this is what's been great now too is now that we have some funds to hire people to do the research for us makes such great conversation because I'm, I'm finding the documents. I'm, I'm, you know, sending them out to people they're reading through it, getting the little morsels of information. And as we see the plant database now fill out with more and more plants. Now I'm excited again because I'm learning again, all these different things that I didn't know. Um, Oh, I have to tell you, I just, this is, this is kind of funny. So, uh, where are you located again? You're, You're out west.
0: Uh, we're, we're in the Central Valley in the foothills right now, but we're in the process of moving up to Sonoma County and opening a school for permaculture for homeschoolers K through 12 in Sebastopol, which is one of the most diverse, ecologically, ecologically diverse places, um, in California and in America.
1: Oh, wow. Okay. All right. So you're, um... You're up in that area. See, now I just forgot. I asked you that, and then I forgot what I was going to say. Um,
0: uh, we're, up, I... we're up. We're going to be moving up where Luther Burbank, basically next to where Luther Burbank had his farm. Mm-hmm. And we're going to be able to grow a huge array of foods. It's going to be awesome.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, well, what what we want to do is, like I mean, I, what I was saying before was... You know, and you're in that area. There, people know the plants that grow there, um, that work well there, because there's all these little niches, of uh, uh, these functional spaces where people, or where, excuse me, where plants grow, um, and the people locally are the ones to talk to. And that's as we work with the correspondents and the people that we have in different areas. That's what we're really trying to find out is what they know. Uh, when I design, I've been, I mean, I've been so lucky to, to travel and do design work first all over the country now over the world which is just blowing my mind um, and by the way in permaculture it's the same process it does not change and that's what amazes me about the work that we do whether i go to you know uh, west texas or lebanon or costa rica the questions are always the same the answers change but it's always the same things that I want to know about where I am, the ecological requirements of the plants, everything that goes on there, what the culture is, right? All wow. those kinds of things. And so the design process is very consistent and it works really well, not even changing one bit, depending upon where I'm going to be. There are new questions. Elevation is one because, you know, being on the planes, elevation isn't that big a deal, but what I'm, but what I'm finding out, of course, when I when I go to these other areas, elevation is huge, right? You go up a thousand feet, you know, you're not growing those plants anymore. You're growing these plants, um, and everybody knows that you can, you know, where the coffee's going to grow, where the coca's going to grow, where the bananas are going to grow, all those kinds of things. You know, very much a localized sort of uh, intelligence, you might say, in putting that together. So, well, I'll probably remember later and go on aha moment what I was going to tell you. I'm sure it was some kind of fantastic uh, insight
0: um, well i really appreciate you coming on and sharing with us i'll make sure to put links down in the show notes so that no sure. one can miss it and i hope that everyone who's listening signs up and uses that tool because if you're going to design your own place or if you are going to be designing for anyone else it's the most thorough resource that we have thank you so much daniel
1: well thank you i appreciate your time and this opportunity take care
0: All right, you too. Bye.